Last week, we talked about how love bears with others, pushing through the annoyances that are caused by our ultimately human preferences. But there are times when scripture calls us to, well, call each other out. Correction is a touchy and difficult topic for many in this day and age. But today, Jeremy discusses the way that Jesus corrected in a way that led to restoration. Welcome to Challenge. Well, spoiler alert on the topic. Um, We're going to be talking about very much that correction. Um, Hey, for those of you guys that have not met me before, uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you, uh, my name is Jeremy Walker and I'm on staff with Christian Challenge and been on staff for, I think I'm going on 11 years now. And so this is fun. Yeah, that's right. Past past the decade mark. Um, uh, My wife, Katie, was here last week. She couldn't be here tonight. She's prepping... uh, like all the bags and everything with the kids. We're heading out to go to my sister-in-law's wedding in Oklahoma tomorrow. And so uh, we're going to, it's a lot of work when you're traveling with three little kids. So um, so she's going to probably be up late doing that. Um, I realized this week in some conversations with my kids, um, with my six-year-old Corey and my four-year-old William, that probably, uh, you know, one of the things you might want to work on correcting here soon is just, you know, humility. Um, with uh, my six-year-old, I was telling her, I was like, Corey, you did a really good job, by the way, like teaching William how to fold towels. He was folding it really well in the bathroom and he like folded, you know, the corners and folding the corners and set it on the sink. I was like, you did a really good job. She was like, I know, I'm a pretty amazing big sister. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's so humble too. Um, and then uh, and then like a day later, my wife was telling William, my four-year-old, she was like, William, you're just such a cute boy. Why are you so cute? She goes, I don't know. That's just how God made me, you know? <laughs> and I was like... Yes, that, that is true, but, you know, also, uh, same gene of your sister. Um, so tonight we are continuing. Uh, we're in week five of a six-part series that we've been going through this semester called As I Have Loved You, um, which, as we've talked about, is a, a line taken from uh, one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples in his last meal with them and his final commandment to them. Um, and actually... That final meal took place on a Thursday night, just like this one. Um, and in that commandment, in John 13, 34 and 35, this is what he said. He said, a new commandment I give you, to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And see, in, in the geniusness of what Jesus said and what he did that night, um, he knew what we've been saying each week as well, which is if you're going to experience the life that you crave, and the one that God desires for you, you need to know how to love others. And in particular, you want to learn how to love other people the way Jesus loved. That not only is going to really bring God honor and really bless you, but it's going to be a real help to other people as well. And so tonight, um, I kind of drew the short straw on topics. Uh, I, I'm talking about uh, possibly the hardest topic that we're going to talk about in this series in terms of, you know, an aspect of love, which is love corrects. Um, now, for many of us today with some of the other topics we've talked about, whether you practice it or not, I I bet you can kind of get behind and more easily wrap your mind around the idea of like, yeah, yeah, love, love accepts, you know, love, love befriends, love serves. I mean, maybe even like what we talked about last week. Yeah, I I get love bears with, but love corrects. That's, that's not very fun, you know? And not only is it not very fun, but honestly, I think many people would say it doesn't sound very loving either, you know, correcting. Um, You know, I've seen some people and myself included at times that you can get, some people, and they will work themselves to the bone, serving and accepting, but they won't touch correcting with the 10-foot pole. 
you know, which, which you kind of have to stop and ask, well, why is that? Why is that? Um, I think for many of us, a big part of it is we have a wrong idea of what uh, correction is. Um, and so therefore we don't see it as really an aspect of showing love. Some of that's maybe from personal experiences. Some of that may be just from experience that we've seen of other people, but we have a wrong understanding of why we correct. And so therefore we kind of avoid it. Um, but biblical loving correction, you know, that's different. Uh, biblically, we correct not to make people feel bad or embarrass them. Uh, we don't, that's not why we correct. And biblically, we correct not because we refuse to forgive that person or because we think, well, I need to correct them in order to forgive them. No, that's not why we correct. Um, biblically, we, don't, we correct not because we can't bear with them any longer and we just need to finally you know, tell them off, let them have it. And it's not because we're better than them or we have it all together. But biblically, we correct for the other person's benefit, period. That's why we correct. See, whenever you or someone else goes down a path that's destructive for themselves, they not only are in danger of hurting themselves, but also they're going to really potentially hurt their relationship with God and other people. And so the goal of correction is always restoration. It's never condemnation. The goal of correction is always restoration. It's never condemnation. Now, if that idea is new to you, or maybe that idea, maybe it doesn't fully make sense to you, or maybe it makes sense to you, but you're thinking, yeah, but before I really buy into that, what does that even look like practically? I, I get that. I get that. And so tonight, I want to walk through an example of how Jesus did that with one of his closest disciples uh, named Peter. And then I want to wrap up a little bit, talk about what are some practical ways that we actually can really love in that same way. Um, Jesus' correction uh, with Peter, th this is a story, you know, not only about his correction, but really his restoration of Peter. And it, really, it took place after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and it's recorded in John 21, 15 through 17. Now, some of you guys may know this story already, uh, but to really appreciate kind of the significance and, and of the conversation and what all took place between them, I want to talk a little bit about sort of what, what, what led up to this. What's the backdrop? What's the context for this story before we get into it? So during the final meal, that Jesus had with his disciples, some of the, we've been talking about some throughout the past week. Um, the same meal where he gave the new commandment to love as he loved, and the same meal where his disciples argued over who was going to be the greatest, and the same meal where Jesus would serve these guys by washing their feet, and also in the same meal that Judas, one of the 12 disciples, left midway through the meal to go and betray Jesus. I mean, this is turning out to be quite a meal. You know, I mean, drama, drama, drama. This is, this is going to be a night to remember for sure. But as if that wasn't enough, during this final meal also, um, Jesus drops a bomb on these guys and he tells them, hey guys, um, this is my last meal with you. You know, I, I'm about to go somewhere that you can't go. I'm about to go to the cross and, and die for you guys. But the disciples, they're, they're still a little unclear, you know, sometimes, again, short of the uptake, and sometimes Jesus can be a little bit... Um, you know, vague intentionally in the way he, he says things. And so, so they're a little confused. So who jumps in to speak? But Peter, you know, classic Peter. Oh, I will speak. And he says in John 13, 36 and 37, it says, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And then Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? You know, I will lay down my life for you. And notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know, why can't we follow you? You know, we laid down our lives for you. And I, I think he said that 
Um, he didn't say that because honestly, one of the things you get an impression of in Peter as the gospel goes on is he kind of sees himself as a little bit, a little bit better than the other disciples, a little bit of a cut above the rest, you know, a little more, a little more committed. It's as if Peter was saying, you know, hey, Jesus, I mean, I, I get that you're about to go somewhere dangerous. Where? I, I don't know. And, um, and I get that you don't think these guys can handle it. Frankly, I don't think they can either. You know, um, you know, I, I, uh, I get that, you know, but again, but Jesus, come on, I'm Peter. Remember the rock, the stone, you know, like these guys, they, they probably would, you know, uh, not follow, but, but, but I'm, I'm me, you know, I would follow you to the death. I would die for you. And then Jesus answered him and says, will you really lay down your life for me? Says, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Wow. How would you like to have that as a response back to your claim to sticking it to the end? Now, Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, he also records a part of what took place in this dinner conversation that John doesn't. And so in Matthew 26, 31 through 33, it says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. See, here again, Peter's kind of uh, boasting of his allegiance, sort of elevating himself above the rest of the disciples. It's as if he's saying, you know, Jesus, even if all these guys fall away, and they probably will, they probably will. Not me, Jesus. You know, in fact, I'm actually kind of surprised he even let some of these guys stick around as long as he did. You know, I mean, Matthew over here, the task collector, you can't trust that guy. You know, or, or doubting Thomas over there, there's no faith there. Of course, he's going to whip out. You know, but me, come on, Jesus, I'm Peter. You know, I would not deny you. In fact, I love you more than these guys. I'm more committed to you than these guys. I'm the rock, remember? This is Peter you're talking about. Just look at these guys behind, you know? But then, and just a few hours later, in the middle of the night, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And he was arrested by some Roman soldiers who were accompanied by some of the religious leaders that wanted to have Jesus killed. And during the initial trial of Jesus, when he's standing before the high priest, Peter is at a distance, kind of watching this, warming himself by a charcoal fire. And three different times he gets asked by three different people, are you, do you know Jesus? Are you one of his followers? And three different times, Peter denies him. Big, strong, brave, cut above the rest, Peter. And Luke records in his gospel account that after Peter denied Jesus, it says he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was so ashamed of what he had done. And probably he was honestly pretty surprised by what he had done. I think he thought, that's not me. You know, I'm Peter. You know, I don't, I don't do this kind of stuff. Which that's something we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Well, later that day, as many of you guys know, Jesus was unjustly beaten and crucified, and then he would, uh, died on the cross and was buried in the tomb just as he predicted. And just as he predicted, he also rose from the dead three days later, which, by the way, is the anchor of our faith as Christians. See, it's one thing for a person to die for you. I mean, that's, that's really well-intentioned, but if they stay dead, you're still in your sin. You know, death is still reigning supreme. But if they predict their death and resurrection and pull it off, there's hope there. Well, over the course of the next few weeks, 
Jesus appears to the disciples three different times. Now, can you imagine being one of those disciples? You're, you're pretty excited and you're fairly shocked. Like, we saw you die and now you're here eating a meal with us. And it's on this third appearance that Jesus finally confronts Peter and corrects him and restores him. Now, what was happening right before he does this is Peter and some of the disciples are out fishing in the middle of the night because they were fishermen. That's how they made a living. And uh, they had a really bad night. I mean, stayed up all night fishing, didn't catch anything. And in the morning time, Jesus, they see Jesus standing on the beach and he says, hey guys, maybe throw the net on the other side of the boat as if, you know, five feet is going to make much of a difference. But they say, okay, and they do. And they catch a boatload of fish. Imagine that, you know. Turns out Jesus can still do things. Um, and then Jesus invites him to shore and he has a charcoal fire there with, you know, breakfast on the beach. I mean, does it get any better than that? And he says, guys, come on, let's have some breakfast. And then it's during this breakfast or right after that Jesus has the conversation with Peter. And this is in John 21, 15 through 17. Now, I want to I read kind of the whole conversation and then we're going to go by... Uh, look at some of the different things, make some observations as we go down after that. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now notice from the beginning, Jesus came at Peter very relationally as a friend. You know, he didn't, he didn't come in all hot and heavy and angry and bitter like, I'm about to let you have it. You deny me. And no, but he came as a friend. I mean, he helped him with this fishing business. And then he made him breakfast on the beach, you know, and they're eating and having a, you know, a, a nice time together. And then he asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Meaning, you know, do you truly love me more than these other, disi than these other disciples love me? Because see, you said you did, but then your actions don't really line up with what you said. To which Peter rather quickly replied, you know, probably still not fully getting Jesus' point. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. After all, I'm Peter, remember? The rock. Which, you know, I'm sure that in light of the elephant in the room of his betrayal of Jesus, he probably didn't come across, and he probably didn't think he came across quite as convincingly as he had before he denied Jesus. And as he's saying this, I bet it began to kind of occur to him, wait a minute, did, did Jesus just call me Simon, son of John? I'm Peter, remember? I'm the rock. Like, don't you still think I'm the rock? You know? And as he's thinking this, Jesus replies to him, well, if you love me, Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. Meaning, Peter, if you really love me, you won't just do it with words. You'll do it with action. Because see, you're going to show you love me by obeying me. And you're going to, as you take care of your fellow brothers and sisters who are followers of me, not just talk about it. See, it's one thing to be called a rock and to talk a big game as a leader, it's another thing altogether to actually lay your life on the line for the people you're leading and be a rock. Then Jesus asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Now notice in the second question, he's not asking if, you know, 
Peter loves them, loves him as much as the other disciples love him. He's asking an even more basic question here. He's just asking, do you love me at all? Period. To which Peter, I think possibly beginning to get the point, probably answered a little bit slower and said, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. So Jesus replies again in a different way, but really meaning the same thing, then take care of my sheep. Meaning, show me your love, Peter, by your actions, not just by your words. And then finally, just as Peter denied Jesus three times, uh, Jesus asked Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, was that a hard conversation for Peter to hear? Yeah. Did it hurt him? Yeah, you bet. It probably did. Was that the point? Absolutely not. You see, Jesus was reestablishing his relationship with Peter, and he was reestablishing him as a leader among the disciples. But he also realized, Peter, you need to understand some things first before you move on with some of this. You need to understand that, Peter, you aren't a rock because you love me more or because you're more committed or you're somehow more special than these other disciples. You're a rock because I made you a rock. You know, your, your identity needs to be and your hope needs to be grounded in who I have said you are and who I made you to be. Not some self, you know, self-made, self-righteous, achieved identity of your own. That's not how you're the rock. And yes, Peter, you know, I, do, I believe you do love me, you know. But the reality is you probably don't love me more than these other disciples. You probably love me about as much as these other disciples. You've grown a lot, Peter, but you still have room to grow. You haven't arrived just yet. And finally, I think Jesus wanted Peter to be reminded and to be crystal clear on the fact that talk alone is not enough. Real love is not shown by flowery or bold declarations, but it's shown by obedience and action. And as you look at the rest of Peter's life, it really does seem he got the message loud and clear because he continued to be a leader and really a bold witness for Jesus the rest of his life. But now, the way he lived, it was really grounded in his identity in Christ, and was very much under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And while he continued to be a courageous leader, he did it really in a spirit of humility, even up to his death. Um, you know, according to church tradition, from men, uh, from church historians like Tertullian and Eusebius, Peter was actually crucified for his faith in Rome uh, under Emperor Nero. Um, and according to what some of these uh, historians have said, is actually... And he wasn't crucified in a normal way. Whereas a normal crucifixion would be right side up. Peter actually said, actually, I'm not even worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Lord and Savior Jesus. Like, you need to crucify me upside down. Wow. That's a big difference from the Paul or from the Peter earlier that Jesus was correcting. But what if Jesus hadn't loved Peter enough to correct him? What if he hadn't loved him enough to correct him? What if he had written Peter off as a lost cause or was afraid to have an awkward but needed conversation? All that ensued in Peter's growth and the man he became and all the influence he had in advancing Christianity and spreading it and helping people grow as followers of Jesus through the letters that he wrote and through his example and leadership, all of that wouldn't have never happened. 
He probably would have died as an obscure first century Jewish fisherman, haunted and confused by his past failures with a still broken relationship with his Lord Jesus. And men and women, I would suggest to you that some of those very same reasons are the reasons that we ought to be willing to love enough that if the time came for us to correct people, we'd be willing to do it. And we'd be ready to do it. For their good, and so that their relationships with God and with other people would be able to thrive and not diminish or be stifled. So then how do you really correct in a wise and helpful way? How do you really correct in a wise and helpful way? And I phrase it that way because I think there are some very unwise and very unhelpful ways to correct people. And I know because I'm pretty sure I've experimented with all of them myself and found them not to be helpful. So if you don't want to repeat some of the things I've done, then you want to correct in a wise and helpful way. That's why in Proverbs 15, 2, it says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge pleasant, but the mouth of the fool spouts foolishness. See, wise people have the ability to package truth and package correction in a way that is more palatable. You know, it still may hurt a little bit, but it goes down smoother. Whereas a fool, a fool's correction is kind of like nails on a chalkboard. It's a hard pill to swallow if it's even helpful advice at all. So how do we correct in a wise and helpful way? Um, let me give you seven suggestions as we, as we move and wrap up here. First, first, do your best to build a track record of catching people doing good and encourage them in that. Because see, even if you know that correction is helpful for you, and even if you know that the person correcting you loves you, the fact, that, uh, the fact is correction usually feels kind of like a relational withdrawal from the emotional capital of the relationship. And so we want to make regular deposits in a relationship as we get time with them, as we encourage them, as we serve them, so that over time, if a time comes that you have to correct them, you're not making an emotional overdraft on the relational account. Now, if that analogy goes over your head, talk to a business student here, and they will be able to help you on that. Um, second, uh, ask God to can really convict them of their wrong without you having to correct them. Ask God to convict them of the wrong without you having to correct them. I've definitely seen this happen and seen it, seen it work in a lot of scenarios where I, I pray for a person and God corrects them all on their own and they realize what they're doing is wrong and they repent of it and they begin to change it. I don't have to say a word. That's the best case scenario. Um, and not only does this keep us humble and dependent upon God, realizing he's the one, but it also kind of helps people that may kind of feel that they're sort of God's hired gun to correct anyone that's sort of you know, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. However, there are often times that you'll find, and I've found that, it becomes clear that, that God's going to be choosing to restore them through your correction. And so, rather than just doing direct himself. And if that happens, you want to be ready to do that. Which is, leads to my third suggestion. You want to be walking with God closely so that you can see clearly how to best help your friends. You want to be walking with God closely so that you can see clearly how to best help your friends. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You know, there's, there's obviously a lot of good reasons why uh, we want to walk with God. But one that this verse points out that's really clear is, um, you want to walk with God closely because it's really those who are living by the Holy Spirit, kind of in line with God's Word, not perfectly, but, but consistently. It's those people that are really going to be able to see clearly 
to know how to restore someone from their sin. And it's those very same people that are going to be able to do it in a very gentle way. And it's those very same people that are going to be able to do it in a way that they don't get pulled into the sin themselves. And if we try to correct others and we're not walking with God, oftentimes it'll come across really hypocritical, really judgmental. Um, And in general, you're probably just going to give some really poor advice. Because, you see, if you're not walking with God, you're not going to really be able to help someone else get back on track with walking with God. It just makes sense. So fourth, when you, when you do correct, look to correct patterns, not just one-time events. And look to correct patterns that are really based on the Bible and not just your personal preference. Now, the exception to that would be if, you know, a one-time event is just so extreme that, honestly, it warrants being corrected. Like, you don't want to be like, well, I mean, they only killed one person. Let's see if it's a pattern, you know. And then, and then maybe I'll, I'll think to talk about it. No, I mean, like, there are situations that you need to do that. But in general, you want to really look for patterns, not just one-offs. And you, and you want to look for things that, is this against Scripture or is it against my personal preference? Because, see, if you get real nitpicky and you try to correct every little thing, not only is that incredibly annoying, but you're going to really lose influence in those people's lives, and they're going to tune you out to where when you actually see a pattern that needs to be corrected, you're not going to have any influence in that personal life to actually be able to correct it anyway. So be patient and see if what you're noticing is a pattern. And if it's not, forgive them and just learn to bear with them. And actually, even if it is a pattern, you still want to forgive them, but probably not worth bringing up. Fifth suggestion, I'd say look to correct in person and in private. It says in Matthew 18, 15, it says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. You know, correction is hard enough that when people have to try to guess on your tone of voice and your nonverbals over text or over a phone call, all sorts of things can go wrong um, and get misinterpreted. And so, and also being corrected in public, that's just embarrassing. I mean, even if the person agrees with what you're saying, they're probably going to get really defensive. And that's not the goal of correction anyway. We're not trying to embarrass them. We're trying to restore them. And so you want to correct in person and in private. Now, if you read on in this passage, which we're not going to, it does talk about there are times when if the person doesn't listen just one-on-one, it may, it may be time to involve some other people in the correction process, but that is not your first move. Your first move is always to go to them one-on-one and in person. Sixth, and we're almost done, guys. Be encouraged. When you're talking to them, tell them what you see going on and ask clarifying questions. See, so you might say something like, you know, it seems to me, from what I'm observing that, and then tell them what you're observing. But realize there might be some pieces of the puzzle that you're missing. There may be some things that you misinterpreted. Maybe you don't have all the facts. And so you want to be humble. You want to ask questions. And then ask them if they're seeing what you're seeing. Um, because what I've noticed is some people, when you correct them, they know exactly what they're doing is wrong. And they, uh, they just are waiting and it, it really until a loving friend comes along beside them and tells them, Hey, you know what? Um, do you see this? And they're like, yeah, I, I see that. And, and it's at that point that they really change it. Um, but those other times, honestly, people are oblivious to the sin in their life. They're oblivious to the things that are hurting them and are hurting other people. Um, which is why, you know, we all have blind spots. We need people to help point them out. That's why it says in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, it says, see to it, brothers, 
and sisters, that none of you have a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Did you know every single day is called today? Right. So, you know, I think he's making a point there. Um, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, sin creates a lot of blind spots in my life and in yours. So we want to tell them what we see, and we want to ask clarifying questions. And then my last suggestion on how to correct in a wise and helpful way is remind the other person as often as you can think of it in the conversation that you really do care for them and that you're just looking to help. See, as we talked about at the beginning and as we saw modeled kind of in the conversation between Peter and Jesus, you know, correction is not a gotcha moment. Uh, It's not a, you know, I'm better than you moment or anything like that. It's really just one friend trying to help another person get back on the path that they know is right for their life. See, no one intends to ruin parts of their lives or to ruin their life in its entirety, but it happens all the time. And without loving friends who are willing to do something difficult and uncomfortable, like correcting us when we need it, we all run the risk of ruining parts of our lives or our whole life entirely. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a a German pastor and theologian, and in this book called Life Together, which I'd encourage you to read sometime, um, he says this fairly strong, but, but honestly, as I've thought about it, pretty accurate statement. He says, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. See, if we truly care for those around us, if we truly want to love them like Jesus loves them, then we have to be willing and ready to correct them if and when the time arises to do so. And if we do, and the onlooking world, they're going to notice that because that is not normal. And they're going to begin to realize that we bear the characteristics of Jesus because we love one another. And they are going to be drawn to that. And honestly, they're going to be better for it. And many of them are going to begin to follow Jesus as a result. So let me pray. And then we're going to welcome the band back up. Father, um, this is not a fun topic. Nobody likes being corrected. Nobody likes correcting. But it is necessary. Um, God, thank you that you were willing to correct Peter and so many other disciples along the way. And God, they were better men for it. And we're here as a result of their work. And God, I pray that uh, whether we're on, if we're on the receiving end of correction, God, I really do pray that we would receive it knowing that the other person really has our best interest at heart. And if we're on the giving end of correction, God, to help us to really consider your example and some of these things that you speak about in Scripture of how to best handle that so we can do it in a really wise and a really helpful way. And God, may the person that we're correcting really end up getting restored back in a better relationship with you and a better relationship with us and with the people around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the USA Christian Challenge podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platforms where you can also give us a review. We meet in person every Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. in DCC 450 on the campus of the University of Southern California. So if you're in the area, we'd love to see you there. 
Get involved and find out more about us, our upcoming events such as the Fall Discipleship Conference, and weekly small groups on Instagram at USC Challenge and on our website, uschristianchallenge.com.